Western Europe, Chapter Thirteen, of Memoirs of a Revolutionist, Volume Two, by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. The trial was over, but I remained for another couple of months at the Lyon prison. Most of my comrades had lodged an appeal against the decision of the police court, and we had to wait for its results. With four more comrades I refused to take any part in that appeal to a higher court, and continued to work in my pistole. A great friend of mine, Martin, a clothier from Vienne, took another pistole by the side of the one which I occupied, and as we were already condemned, we were allowed to take our walks together, and when we had something to say to each other between the walks, we used to correspond by means of taps on the wall, just as in Russia. Already during my sojourn at Lyon I began to realize the awfully demoralizing influence of the prisons upon the prisoners, which brought me later to condemn unconditionally the whole institution. The Lyon prison is a modern prison, built in the shape of a star, on the cellular system. The spaces between the rays of the star-like building are occupied by small asphalt-paved yards, and, weather permitting, the inmates are taken to these yards to work outdoors. They mostly beat out the unwound silk cocoons to obtain floss silk. Flocks of children are also taken at certain hours to these yards. Thin, emasculated, underfed, the shadows of children. I often watched them from my window. Anemia was plainly written on all the little faces and manifest in their thin, shivering bodies and not only in the dormitories but also in the yards, in the full light of the sun, they themselves increase their anemia. What will become of these children after they have passed through that schooling and come out with their health ruined, their will annihilated, their energy weakened? Anemia, with its weakened energy and unwillingness to work, its enfeebled will, weakened intellect, and perverted imagination, is responsible for crime to an infinitely greater extent than plethora, and it is precisely this enemy of the human race which is bred in prison. And then, the teachings which the children receive in these surroundings. Mere isolation, even if it were rigorously carried out, and it cannot be, would be of little avail. The whole atmosphere of every prison is an atmosphere of glorification of that sort of gambling and clever strokes, which constitutes the very essence of theft, swindling, and all sorts of similar antisocial deeds. Whole generations of future prisoners are bred in these nurseries, which the state supports and society tolerates, simply because it does not want to hear its own diseases spoken of and dissected. Imprisoned in childhood, prison bird for life, was what I heard afterwards from all those who were interested in criminal matters. And when I saw these children and realized what they had to expect in the future, I could not but continually ask myself, which of them is the worst criminal, this child or the judge who condemns every year hundreds of children to this fate? I gladly admit that the crime of these judges is unconscious. But are, then, all the crimes for which people are sent to prison as conscious as they are supposed to be? There was another point which I vividly realized since the very first weeks of my imprisonment, but which, in some inconceivable way, 
escapes the attention of both the judges and the writers on criminal law namely that imprisonment in an immense number of cases is a punishment which strikes quite innocent people far more severely than the condemned prisoners themselves nearly every one of my comrades who represented a fair average of the workingmen population had either their wife and children to support or a sister or an old mother who depended for their living upon his earnings now being left without support these women did their best to get work and some of them got it but none of them succeeded in earning regularly even as much as fifteen pence a day nine francs less than eight shillings and often six shillings a week to support themselves and their children was all they could earn and that meant evidently underfeeding privations of all sorts and the deterioration of the health of the wife and the children weakened intellect weakened energy and will i thus realized that what was going on in our law courts was in reality a condemnation of quite innocent people to all sorts of hardships in most cases even worse than those to which the condemned man himself is submitted the fiction is that the law punishes the man by inflicting upon him a variety of physical and degrading hardships but man is such a creature that whatever hardships be imposed upon him he gradually grows accustomed to them as he cannot modify them he accepts them and after a certain time he puts up with them just as he puts up with a chronic disease and grows insensible to it but what during his imprisonment becomes of his wife and children that is of the innocent people who depend upon him for support they are punished even more cruelly than he himself is and in our routine habits of thought no one ever thinks of the immense injustice which is thus committed i realized it only from actual experience in the middle of march eighteen eighty three twenty-two of us who had been condemned to more than one year of imprisonment were removed in great secrecy to the central prison of clairvaux it was formerly an abbey of st bernard of which the great revolution had made a house for the poor subsequently it became a house of detention and correction which went among the prisoners and the officials themselves under the well-deserved nickname of house of detention and corruption so long as we were kept at lyon we were treated as the prisoners under preliminary arrest are treated in france that is we had our own clothes we could get our own food from a restaurant and one could hire for a few francs per month a larger cell a pistole i took advantage of this for working hard upon my articles for the encyclopedia britannica and the nineteenth century now the treatment we should have at clairvaux was an open question however in france it is generally understood that for political prisoners the loss of liberty and forced inactivity are themselves so hard that there is no need to inflict additional hardships consequently we were told that we should remain under the regime of preliminary detention we should have separate quarters retain our own clothes be free from compulsory work and be allowed to smoke those of you the governor said who wish to earn something by manual work will be enabled to do so by sewing stays or engraving small things in mother-of-pearl this work is poorly paid but you could not be employed in the prison workshops for the fabrication of iron beds picture frames and so on because that would require your lodging with the common law prisoners 
Like the other prisoners, we were allowed to buy from the prison canteen some additional food and a pint of claret every day, both being supplied at a very low price and of good quality. The first impression which Clairvaux produced upon me was most favourable. We had been locked up and had been travelling all the day, from two or three o'clock in the morning, in those tiny cupboards into which the cellular railway carriages are usually divided. When we reached the central prison, we were taken temporarily to the cellular, or punishment, quarters, and were introduced into the usual, but extremely clean, cells. Hot food, plain but of excellent quality, had been served to us notwithstanding the late hour of the night, and we had been offered the opportunity of having the half-pint of very good vin du pays, local wine, which was sold to the prisoners by the prison canteen at the extremely low price of twenty-four centimes, less than two and a half d per quart the governor and the warders were most polite to us next day the governor of the prison took me to see the rooms which he intended to give us and when i remarked that they were all right but only a little too small for such a number we were twenty-two and that overcrowding might result in illness he gave us another set of rooms in what was in olden times the house of the superintendent of the abbey, and now was the hospital. Our windows looked out upon a little garden, and beyond it we had beautiful views of the surrounding country. In another room on the same landing, old Blanqui had been kept the last three or four years before his release. Before that he had been imprisoned in the cellular house. Besides the three spacious rooms which were given to us, a smaller room was spared for Gautier and myself, so that we could pursue our literary work. We probably owed this last favour to the intervention of a considerable number of Englishmen of science, who, as soon as I was condemned, had addressed a petition to the President asking for my release. Many contributors to the Encyclopaedia Britannica, as well as Herbert Spencer and Swinburne, had signed while Victor Hugo had added to his signature a few warm words. Altogether, public opinion in France received our condemnation very unfavorably, and when my wife had mentioned at Paris that I required books, the Academy of Sciences offered the use of its library, and Ernest Renan, in a charming letter, put his private library at her service. We had a small garden, where we could play ninepins or jeu de boules, we managed, however, to cultivate a narrow bed running along the wall, and, on a surface of some eighty square yards, we grew almost incredible quantities of lettuces and radishes, as well as some flowers. I need not say that we at once organized classes, and during the three years that we remained at Clairvaux, I gave my comrades lessons in cosmography, geometry, or physics, also aiding them in the study of languages. Nearly everyone learned at least one language, English, German, Italian, or Spanish, while a few learned two. We also managed to do some bookbinding, having learned how from one of those excellent Encyclopédie Gauguet booklets. At the end of the first year, my health again gave way. Clairvaux is built on marshy ground, upon which a malaria is endemic, and malaria with scurvy laid hold of me. Then my wife, who was studying at Paris, working in Wurtz's laboratory and preparing to take an examination for the degree of Doctor of Science, abandoned everything and came to stay in the hamlet of Clairvaux, 
which consists of less than a dozen houses grouped at the foot of an immense high wall which encircles the prison. Of course, her life in that hamlet, with the prison wall opposite, was anything but gay, yet she stayed there till I was released. During the first year she was allowed to see me only once in two months, and all interviews were held in the presence of a warder who sat between us. But when she settled at Clairvaux, declaring her firm intention to remain there, she was soon permitted to see me every day, in one of the small guard-houses of the warders, within the prison walls, and food was brought me from the inn where she stayed. Later, we were even allowed to take a walk in the governor's garden, closely watched all the time, and usually one of my comrades joined us in the walk. I was quite astonished to discover that the central prison of Clairvaux had all the aspects of a small manufacturing town, surrounded by orchards and cornfields, all encircled by an outer wall. The fact is that if in a French central prison the inmates are perhaps more dependent upon the fancies and caprices of the governor and the warders than they seem to be in English prisons, the treatment of the prisoners is far more humane than it is in the corresponding lock-ups on this side of the channel. The medieval spirit of revenge, which still prevails in English prisons, has long since been given up in France. The imprisoned man is not compelled to sleep on planks, or to have a mattress on alternate days only. The day he comes to prison he gets a decent bed and retains it. He is not compelled either to do degrading work, such as to climb a wheel or to pick oakum. He is employed, on the contrary, in useful work, and this is why the Clairvaux prison has the aspect of a manufacturing town in which iron furniture, picture frames, looking-glasses, metric measures, velvet, linen, ladies' stays, small things in mother-of-pearl, wooden shoes, and so on, are fabricated by the nearly sixteen hundred men who are kept there. Moreover, if the punishment for insubordination is very cruel, there is none of the flogging which still goes on in English prisons. Such a punishment would be absolutely impossible in France. Altogether, the central prison at Clairvaux may be described as one of the best prisons in Europe. And yet, the results obtained at Clairvaux are as bad as in any one of the lock-ups of the old type. The watchword nowadays is to say that prisoners are reformed in our prisons, one of the members of the prison administration once said to me, This is all nonsense, and I shall never be induced to tell such a lie. The pharmacy at Clairvaux was underneath the rooms which we occupied, and we occasionally had some contact with the prisoners who were employed in it. One of them was a grey-haired man in his fifties, who ended his term while we were there. It was touching to learn how he parted with the prison. He knew that in a few months or weeks he would be back, and begged the doctor to keep the place at the pharmacy open for him. This was not his first visit to Clairvaux, and he knew it would not be the last. When he was set free he had not a soul in the world to whom he might go to spend his old age. "'Who will care to employ me?' he said. "'And what trade have I? None. When I am out I must go to my old comrades. They, at least, will surely receive me as an old friend.' Then would come a glass too much to drink in their company, excited talk about some capital fun, some capital new stroke to be made in the way of theft, and, partly from weakness of will, partly to oblige his only friends, he would join in it, and would be locked up once more. 
so it had been several times before in his life. Two months passed, however, after his release, and he was not yet back to Clairvaux. Then the prisoners and the warders, too, began to feel uneasy about him. Has he had time to move to another judicial district, that he is not back yet? One can only hope that he has not been involved in some bad affair, they would say, meaning something worse than theft. That would be a pity. He was such a nice, quiet man. But it soon appeared that the first supposition was the right one. Word came from another prison that the old man was locked up there, and was now endeavouring to be transferred to Clairvaux. The old prisoners were the most pitiful sight. Many of them had begun their prison experience in childhood or early youth, others at a riper age. But once in prison, always in prison, such is the saying derived from experience. And now, having reached or passed over the age of sixty, they knew that they must end their lives in a jail. To quicken their departure from life, the prison administration used to send them to the workshops where felt socks were made out of all sorts of woolen refuse. The dust in the workshop soon gave these old men consumption, which finally released them. Then four fellow prisoners would carry the old comrade to the common grave, the graveyard warder and his black dog being the only two beings to follow him, and while the prison priest would march in front of the procession, mechanically reciting his prayer and looking round at the chestnut or fir trees along the road, and the four comrades carrying the coffin would enjoy their momentary escape out of prison, the black dog would be the only being affected by the solemnity of the ceremony. When the reformed central prisons were introduced in France, it was believed that the principle of absolute silence could be maintained in them. But it is so contrary to human nature that its strict enforcement had to be abandoned. In fact, even solitary confinement is no obstacle to intercourse between the prisoners. To the outward observer the prison seems to be quite mute, but in reality life goes on in it as busily as in a small town. In suppressed voices, by means of whispers, hurriedly dropped words, and scraps of notes, every news of any interest spreads immediately all over the prison. Nothing can happen either among the prisoners themselves, or in the Cour d'Honneur, where the lodgings of the administration are situated, or in the village of Clairvaux, where the employers of the factories live or in the wide world of Paris politics, but that it is communicated at once throughout all the dormitories, workshops, and cells. Frenchmen are of too communicative a nature for their underground telegraph ever to be stopped. We had no intercourse with the common-law prisoners, and yet we knew all the news of the day. John, the gardener, is back for two years. Such an inspector's wife has had a fearful scrimmage with so-and-so's wife. James, in the cells, has been caught transmitting a note of friendship to John from the framer's workshop. That old beast so-and-so is no more minister of justice, the ministry has been upset. And so on. And when the news goes that Jack has got two five-penny packets of tobacco in exchange for two flannel spencers, it flies round the prison in no time. Demands for tobacco were continually pouring in upon us and when a small lawyer detained in the prison wanted to transmit to me a note, in order to ask my wife, who was staying in the village, to see from time to time his wife, who was also there, quite a number of men took the liveliest interest in the transmission of that message, which had to pass I do not know how many hands before it reached its goal. 
and when there was something that might specially interest us in a paper, this paper, in some unaccountable way, would reach us, with a little stone wrapped into it, to help its being thrown over a high wall. Cellular imprisonment is no obstacle to communication. When we came to Clairvaux, and were first lodged in the cellular quarter, it was bitterly cold in the cells. So cold, indeed, that when I wrote to my wife, who was then at Paris, and she got my letter, she did not recognize the writing, my hand being so stiff with the cold. The order came to heat the cells as much as possible, but do what they might, the cells remained as cold as ever. It appeared afterwards that all the hot air tubes in the cells were choked with scraps of paper, bits of notes, penknives, and all sorts of small things which several generations of prisoners had concealed in the pipes. Martin, the same friend of mine whom I have already mentioned, obtained permission to serve part of his time in cellular confinement. He preferred isolation to life in a room with a dozen comrades, and went to a cell in the cellular building. To his great astonishment he found that he was not at all alone in his cell. The walls and the keyholes spoke round him. In a day or two all the inmates of the cells knew who he was, and he had acquaintances all over the building. Quite a life goes on, as in a beehive, between the seemingly isolated cells, only that life often takes such a character as to make it belong entirely to the domain of psychopathy. Kraft Ebbing himself had no idea of the aspects it takes with certain prisoners in solitary confinement. I will not repeat here what I have said in a book, In Russian and French Prisons, which I published in England in 1886, soon after my release from Clairvaux, upon the moral influence of prisoners upon prisoners. But there is one thing which must be said. The prison population consists of heterogeneous elements, but, taking only those who are usually described as the criminals proper, and of whom we have heard so much lately from Lombroso and his followers, what struck me most as regards them was that the prisons, which are considered as preventive measure against antisocial deeds, are exactly the institutions for breeding them and for rendering these offences worse and worse after a man has received prison education. Everyone knows that the absence of education the dislike of regular work acquired since childhood, the physical unpreparedness for sustained effort, the love of adventure when it receives a wrong direction, the gambling propensities, the absence of energy and an untrained will, and carelessness about the happiness of others, are the causes which bring this category of men before the courts. Now I was deeply impressed during my imprisonment by the fact that it is exactly these defects of human nature each one of them, which the prison breeds in its inmates, and it is bound to breed them because it is a prison, and will breed them so long as there are prisons. Incarceration in a prison necessarily, fatally, destroys the energy of a man, and still more kills his will. In prison life there is no room for exercising one's will. To possess one's own will in prison means surely to get into trouble. The will of the prisoner must be killed, and it is killed. Still less is the room for exercising one's natural sympathies, everything being done to destroy free contact with those outside the prison, and within it, with whom the prisoner may have feelings of sympathy. Physically and mentally he is rendered less and less prepared for sustained effort, 
and if he has had formerly a dislike for regular work, this dislike is only the more increased during his prison years. If, before he first came to the prison, he soon felt tired by monotonous work, which he could not do properly, or had a grudge against underpaid overwork, his dislike now becomes hatred. If he doubted about the social utility of current rules of morality, now, after having cast a critical glance upon the official defenders of these rules, and learned his comrades' opinions of them, he openly casts the rules overboard. And if he has got into trouble in consequence of a morbid development of the passionate sensual side of his nature, now, after having spent a number of years in prison, this morbid character is still more developed, in many cases to an appalling extent. In this last direction, the most dangerous of all, prison education is most effective. In Siberia I had seen with sinks of filth, and what workshops of physical and moral deterioration the dirty, overcrowded, unreformed Russian prisons were, and at the age of nineteen I imagined that if there were less overcrowding in the rooms, and a certain classification of the prisoners, and healthy occupations were provided for them, the institution might be substantially improved. Now I had to part with these illusions. I could convince myself that as regards their effects upon the prisoners, and their results for society at large, the best reformed prisons, whether cellular or not, are as bad as, or even worse, than the dirty lock-ups of old. They do not reform the prisoners. On the contrary, in the immense, overwhelming majority of cases, they exercise upon them the most deteriorating effect. The thief, the swindler, the rough man, and so on, who has spent some years in a prison, comes out of it more ready than ever to resume his former career. He is better prepared for it, he has learned how to do it better, he is more embittered against society, and he finds a more solid justification for being in revolt against its laws and customs. Necessarily, unavoidably, he is bound to go farther and farther along the anti-social path which first brought him before a law court. The offences he will commit after his release will be graver than those which first got him into trouble and he is doomed to finish his life in a prison or in a hard-labor colony. In the above-mentioned book, I wrote that prisons are universities of crime maintained by the state. And now, thinking of it at fifteen years' distance, in the light of my subsequent experience, I can only confirm that statement of mine. Personally, I have no reason whatever to complain of the years I have spent in a French prison. For an active and independent man, the restraint of liberty and activity is in itself so great a privation that all the remainder, all the petty miseries of prison life, are not worth speaking of. Of course, when we heard of the active political life which was going on in France, we resented very much our forced inactivity. The end of the first year, especially during a gloomy winter, is always hard for the prisoner. And when spring comes, one feels more strongly than ever the want of liberty. When I saw from our windows the meadows assuming their green garb, and the hills covered with a spring haze, or when I saw a train flying into a dale between the hills, I certainly felt a strong desire to follow it, to breathe the air of the woods, to be carried along with a stream of human life into a busy town. 
but one who casts his lot with an advanced party must be prepared to spend a number of years in prison, and he need not grudge it. He feels that even during his imprisonment he remains not quite an inactive part of the stream of human progress, which spreads and strengthens the ideas which are dear to him. At Lyon, my comrades, my wife and myself, certainly found the warders a very rough set of men. But after a couple of encounters all was set right. Moreover, the prison administration knew that we had the Paris press with us, and they did not want to draw upon themselves the thunders of Rochefort or the cutting criticisms of Clemenceau. And at Clairvaux there was no need of such a restraint. All the administration had been renewed a few months before we came thither. A prisoner had been killed by warders in his cell, and his corpse had been hanged to simulate suicide. But this time the affair leaked out through the doctor. The governor was dismissed, and altogether a better tone prevailed in the prison. I took back from Clairvaux the best recollections of its governor, and altogether while I was there I more than once thought that after all Men are often better than the institutions to which they belong. But having no personal griefs, I can all the more freely and most unconditionally condemn the institution itself as a survival from the dark past, wrong in its principles, and a source of unfathomable evil to society. One thing more I must mention, as it struck me, perhaps, even more than the demoralizing effects of prisons upon their inmates. What a nest of infection is every prison, and even a law court for its neighborhood, for the people who live about them. Lombroso has made very much of the criminal type which he believes to have discovered amongst the inmates of the prisons. If he had made the same efforts to observe people who hang about the law courts, detectives, spies, small solicitors, informers, people preying upon simpletons, and the like, he would probably have concluded that his criminal type has a far greater geographical extension than the prison walls. I never saw such a collection of faces of the lowest human type, sunk far below the average type of mankind, as I saw by the score round and within the Palais de Justice at Lyon, certainly not within the prison walls of Clairvaux. Dickens and Cruikshank have immortalized a few of these types, but they represent quite a world which gravitates around the law courts, and infuses its infection far and wide around them. And the same is true of each central prison like Clairvaux. Quite an atmosphere of petty thefts, petty swindlings, spying and corruption of all sorts, spreads like a blot of oil around every prison. I saw all this, and if before my condemnation I already knew that society is wrong in its present system of punishments, after I left Clairvaux, I knew that it is not only wrong and unjust in this system, but that it is simply foolish when, in its partly unconscious and partly willful ignorance of realities, it maintains at its own expense these universities of crime and these sinks of corruption, acting under the illusion that they are necessary as a bridle to the criminal instincts of man. End of Western Europe Chapter 13